Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Armin Feldman, along with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Bummer. And today, Mike, uh, we're going to talk about uh, an idea that you had. Uh, Of course, as you know, and hopefully our listeners are beginning to know, is that uh, when we read reports, we try to back up all of our medical opinions with evidence from the medical literature. And you had this thought that... uh, would make an interesting topic would be for us to share with our listeners some of our most used or some of our most favorite or interesting medical journal articles that we use. That's exactly right, Armin. When we are writing these comprehensive medical summary reports, we search for and find peer-reviewed research literature that supports our claims about whether it's ongoing problems that help explain the, 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 the ongoing issues that a client is having, or whether it supports a treatment opportunity that maybe was missed, or what, maybe it, it creates a causation between the actual event, which as we know is commonly a car crash or some type of injury, and a reason that someone is having ongoing medical complications. So we, when we do this, as you know, because we we do it so frequently, we reuse a lot of the same literature to support to to get our clients better, so they can make have better settlements and, and more oomph whenever they're trying to fight for their client. And there's a few papers that I loved when I found them. It was almost like you just hit the lottery because you you know that there's an injury right. and you know that they're the the person's suffering, but you can't explain it. And then boom, you find this great research. Right. So why don't you start out with the first first one? Sure. So this one jumped out the moment I found it. I knew it was going to be something I could lean on because I had a case that involved an elderly woman that was involved in a rear-end car collision. And the paper really highlighted exactly what I was trying to 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 help illustrate for my attorney in their settlement demand. And I'll just read you the title of the article. It, it, sure. it it's called Persistent Pain Among Older Adults discharged home from the emergency department after motor vehicle crash, a prospective cohort study. And this was done in 2015. Great. So tell me a little bit about the article. So they, it's so hard to find prospective studies. For, for those people who don't look at research a lot, a lot of it's retrospective or it's storytelling. This one actually looked at about how many? Uh, uh, well, the 161 participants. And they looked at age 65 and older who presented to the emergency room after a motor vehicle crash, mm-hmm. but they were discharged home. So they, mm-hmm. it excluded the severe, you know, hip fractures and these, these major uh, debilitating uh, injuries. But it took the, this category of people who go to the ER after a crash, who happen to be elderly, and 
it looked at how they do later, you know, six months, 12 months, years later. And the paper just illustrates so plainly that there is such a body of evidence that exists out there that even minor injuries among older adults, and in the study was 65 and older, have long lasting implications, their ability to, you know, complete activities of daily living, um, their ability to interact with their family, their, their, their general life enjoyment score. Right. So uh, that would be valuable information for, for an attorney to know and for them to be keeping an eye out for these kinds of things that come up after what looks like um, it might be a fairly uh, minor situation. Exactly. And they looked, I, I just checked here, they looked at physical function at six months, at 12 months. They looked at difficulty with new activities of daily living. And they looked at a change in their living situation or the need to require additional help. And all of these were significantly greater in this elderly population mm. that seemingly had a pretty minor crash. I mean, they were sent home, right? Right. So give me an example. So this similar case, the woman was 68 years old. She got rear-ended and she had some pre-existing back pain that had pretty much been, uh, let's call it addressed. She was still shopping, driving, playing with her grandchildren, babysitting. She had this car crash. She was discharged home with only minor injuries. And the attorney asked me to get involved because she was unable to drive herself to the grocery store. She no longer could babysit her grandchildren. And it was it was very unexplainable because it felt like there was just soft tissue injuries, but mm -hmm. he was trying to represent the impact that that injury had on this woman's life. Right. So we would call that the, the, the functional losses that occur uh, due to traumatic injuries, right? Exactly. Exactly. So do you, do you have a paper that you want to jump in here with next? Yeah, I got one that kind of dovetails with what uh, you're talking about. So, Something that comes up so frequently is somebody gets involved in what looks like kind of a minor auto injury, auto crash problem. Maybe it happens in a parking lot or it doesn't look like there's much damage to the car or that logic would tell you that uh, this person can't possibly be injured very much. And so this is a paper that's titled, Do Whiplash Injuries Occur in Low-Speed Rear Impacts? And this is kind of a classic paper by a guy by the name of Castro and his group. So let me give you the exciting uh, bottom line on this, and then I'll talk just a little bit about how they did this. So what this paper has determined, and it's kind of a seminal paper that we use all the time, is that in certain, obviously, uh, at higher speeds, right, you would expect that there would be um, greater and more significant injuries. Yes, yes. But what this paper says is that the limit of harmlessness, in other words, um, speeds at which um, things might not happen, but at slightly higher speeds, thing, uh, very serious things can happen. And so what they found is that in accidents <clears throat> in which uh, people were colliding at uh, 
uh, a pace of 10 kilometers an hour. I'm sorry, 10 kilometers uh, an hour speed. Uh, so that would be uh, in um, miles per hour. That would be uh, at six miles an hour. That actually, in, in certain individuals, very serious ac- uh, problems can occur, uh, not the least of which are uh, whiplash injuries. And so uh, I know that my uh, attorney clients are always scratching their heads and they're saying, well, there's evidence that this speed happened, this accident happened at very low speed, and yet my client has all of these problems. Uh, obviously, opposing counsel, opposing doctors are going to say, "Well, how how could it possibly happen that this person is so injured?" Well, here's the paper that explains it. So I kind of I kind of picture a scenario where because we've all done it where we're not paying attention. We think the car in front of us moves and then we apply the the gas and kind of are looking for the our opportunity to get on, whether it's an on-ramp. But in reality, we only had about six feet between me and the car in front. And I didn't know that they had not actually committed to going. So now you, you rear end them maybe at about five or or eight miles per hour. Is that something similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what this is talking about. And so the the way that they did this study is they actually got healthy volunteers to crash at low speeds. (laughs) And they had uh, 14 male volunteers. Their ages were 28 to 47. They had five female volunteers aged 26 to 37. And they exposed them to, uh, they wrapped them up. They, they were sensory deprived. They, they didn't know the accident was coming. Their muscles were uh, probably a little bit more relaxed. And they crashed them. And um, they found that of this group of uh, 19, one person actually wound up with a serious whiplash injury. So uh, to extrapolate that out, in these low-impact accidents, essentially about one out of every 20 people is going to have a, a significant injury because of this. And what they likened it to, Mike, is they said these are the speeds that occur in common carnival bumper car rides. Gotcha. That It's that speed at which certain predisposed people can have significant injuries. And this this helps uh, our uh, attorney clients tremendously when uh, they're getting all this pushback uh, from uh, doctors and opposing counsel uh, saying, well, this couldn't possibly happen. Well, it can happen at the same yeah, speed. Yeah, and I think it's worth being clear that we're not trying to suggest that every five-mile-per-hour crash should be litigated yeah. and pursued and 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 seek, you know, a large remuneration, but where I, I see this fitting in, and I've used this paper, by the way, I didn't actually know specifically this was going to be one you chose. We, we wanted to keep this very, uh, very spontaneous, but it, this paper illustrates that when someone has that unexplainable result, that unexplainable loss of a function, at least it gives you an ability to, to stick a pin on where it might've started from. Yeah, right. Right. So I, I just think that's a great yeah, paper. And, um, quick aside, you know, I was giving a, a talk to a group here in Denver called the Denver Auto Litigators. They're all uh, trial lawyers and 
um, the whole topic was uh, how do we uh, help these cases where we can see with our own, the eyeball test is that our clients are injured. They're not faking it. And, uh, and here's uh, some, uh, some help through the medical literature. Perfect. You mind if I go next? I have one yeah, I'm yeah, pretty yeah, excited about. So this was a case that you and I discussed a few weeks ago, because when I found this, it was kind of, again, another huge light bulb moment where I had a client who suffered a, a pretty significant, again, it was actually a rear end collision. Uh, the, the middle-aged woman in her forties did not see the large truck that was approaching behind her. Ouch. And and she weeks later started to present with all of these very significant headaches, uh, neck pain, uh, dizziness. She was unable to walk up the stairs safely. And it was really unexplained because she had gone to the ER. They had done scans. What happened, though, is on one of the scans, they found that she had an asymptomatic Chiari 1 malformation. Oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. Remember this one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. What that is for our non-medical listeners, a Chiari 1 malformation, very plainly put, is where part of the brainstem in cerebellum actually pushes down into the neck, into the cervical spinal canal. And it sounds really severe, but believe it or not, the majority of these are asymptomatic. It's, it's kind of a congenital known problem. So right. the attorney, uh, this, this occurred years ago, and the, he was looking for, not years, but you know, I think it was a year and a half ago, and he was looking to move this case forward and help this woman out. She had racked up tons of medical bills. And and so he, he wanted to ask me, could this, could the Chiari 1 malformation be caused by the crash? Did it aggravate it? Does, is it related at all? And I'll be honest, before I started looking for the answer, I, I didn't know. I mean, I'm sure that that happens to you a lot. Sure, there are these specialized things, and I mean that's uh, that's those are the interesting questions that we're often asked, and that's why we have to go do this research. And sure enough, so the the main common symptoms of Chiari one malformation, this this pushing down of the into the spinal canal of the brain, is recurrent headaches, uh, usually aggravated by physical activity, dizziness, disequilibrium, dysphagia, and poor coordination. I mean, you couldn't have actually made this a more exact summary for this attorney's client, the client of this attorney. And sure enough, this paper that I found uh, from 2007, I'm going to read you the title because it sums it up. Conversion to symptomatic Chiari 1 malformation after minor head or neck trauma. Hmm. And the paper goes on to illustrate, it shares actually a few case reports in addition to some research that talks specifically about the majority of these malformations being asymptomatic, but the fact that they remain that way for many years, and then about 30% of people will have some type of trauma or head injury, that then all of a sudden, this new aggravated pre-existing issue from this trauma renders this person with permanent disability. Right. That's a great paper to have in your back pocket for one of these cases. Well, it and blew I, this case wide open. I mean, that changed everything because had this woman not had this crash, she wouldn't have. She wouldn't have. She would have gone on like everyone else with this asymptomatic QR one malformation. More than more likely than not. Right. Right. Well, actually, Mike, that brings me to uh, the next one that I wanted to talk about, and that is. 
Something that uh, the attorneys uh, are requesting that we help them with all the time has to do with causation of traumatic injuries, right? That we have to help them and talk about the mechanism of action of the injury and come up with a way to scientifically uh, be able to make a determination that the injuries involved were actually due to the trauma, right? So I call this connecting, connecting the dots for them. Yeah, yeah, connecting the dots. So the interesting thing about that is typically the treating doctors, uh, they're, they're not really concerned about this because it doesn't have much to do with what they do to treat the client. So you don't see in the medical records the treating doctors in a hospital note or in an office note or in a surgical note uh, or um, in an emergency room note saying anything about traumatic causation. But Really, for the case and what we do in our reports that we write, oftentimes this is the the cornerstone uh, of uh, and what the case hinges on. And so there are different ways that uh, we as physicians have to make a determination of traumatic causation. In fact, the AMA has written a, a whole treatise, a whole book on this, and their criteria, I have to say, it's kind of cumbersome, and it's not well suited for, for example, a report that's going to be read by uh, lay people. So uh, there is a group, Freeman and his group, uh, who have developed criteria uh, for the determination of traumatic causation of injuries. And I'll tell you that uh, I know in in many states, case law bears out uh, that using the Freeman criteria is a a valid way uh, to determine causation. So um, I don't want to get too wordy about this, but Basically, there are three criteria that must be met. First, and this is direct from the paper. First, there must be a biologically plausible or possible link between the exposure and the outcome. And uh, we uh, can talk about that and what the symptoms are and how it happens. Second, that there must be a temporal relationship between the exposure and the outcome. The timing, yep. The timing, right. And third, that there uh, must not be a more likely or probable alternative explanation for the symptoms. And sometimes I can get a little wordy in, in that. And, you know, I'll be saying things like, well, you know, it couldn't possibly uh, uh be anything else that the person wasn't in any other accidents they there was nothing in their lifestyle they weren't any kind of participant uh, sports or anything else that uh, you could lay that i wouldn't use this words in a report but that you could lay this off on and uh, this really helps to um n- nail down that whole issue of traumatic causation i'm and- glad that you chose this one because i I've used the similar, I've used the same paper. And when it reads in report form, the way that I believe we both do it, mm-hmm. it really drives home the message to the person on the other side of that report that, you know, in layman's terms, again, I, you know, come on, like this is directly related. You know, it was caused by it. It's reasonable to the caused it. It occurred in a temporal timing where it was very reasonable and there was no other 
causative factor that could have contributed to these issues. And the way it's way it's laid out in the paper and the way I include it, it just feels like almost a it creates a no brainer moment for opposing counsel or adjusters who might be reading this. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. So let's do um, let's do one more in the time yeah, that we have. Sure. What, what else do you have? I have another. I have a short one that got me. I know I sound like I get excited about all these, but maybe that's because I do. When we find these papers, it it just makes what we do so much easier, and it gives so much more impact. And this one was regarding a standard of care evaluation and an analysis that I commonly do, and it involved placental abruption. And the case was really hinged. Not on uh, not on diagnosis of placental abruption, which which is commonly it, which is where the placenta separates from the from the uterus and causes aggressive bleeding, mm. but it was really hinging on the lack of response of the hospital and emergency room, and so the attorney asked me if the response of the emergency room was reasonable or not, and the uh, the, the short of it is. They, the patient arrived at an ambul- uh, via ambulance, was, was having vaginal bleeding, very painful contractions, and it was a classic, what we consider in medical school, a textbook case of placental abruption. Yet, the patient sat in the ER for about 15 minutes. They went up to the obstetrical floor to triage. They sat there for another 15 or 20 minutes until an ultrasound was done that showed the heart rate was extremely low, bradycardic into the like 40s or 50s. And then they finally called an emergency C-section and delivered the baby about 10 minutes later. Mm. What I was able to deduce on this case was the delay was approximately 30 to 45 minutes, depending Uh. on how you look at what should have happened. You know, no one is expected to have a crystal ball and, and have the operating room ready for someone right from the ER, but there are certain triggers. And in placental abruption, when it's that obvious, the response was so lackluster and so delayed mm. that I found a paper that said that delivery interval of less than 20 minutes wow. had a substantially uh, a substantially increased risk of neonatal, you know, poor outcome. Right. And the fact that we were able to use this, you know, this paper that highlighted it, that said, look, 20 minutes is is the mark and you get 20 minutes. And well, this system took 35 to 40 minutes. It, it kind of made my recommendation on the case pretty straightforward. I was able, able to provide this evidence and I, I believe it really helped them concretely decide what standard of care was for the timing of right. dealing with abruption. Right, right. You know, that's interesting to use that word evidence because I think that's so crit- critical is that what, the, maybe it's say, stating the obvious, but what these medical journal articles do is really help the attorney with the evidence that they need to back up the medical theory that they're promoting. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. So let me just do one a one-minute one. And so um, I was presented recently with a case uh, of a... Um, 65-year-old woman who had uh, multiple injuries after uh, an auto accident, rushed her to the hospital, and she got sepsis. In other words, she got an infection in her blood, uh, which is, of course, life, potentially life-threatening. Uh, now, she did survive, but the attorney wanted to know, well, uh, 
can I make up a can I make a theory on the fact that she had so much trauma that that's what caused the sepsis and she had all these problems from the sepsis. So I went to the literature. Hmm. Bottom line, I couldn't find one article about that. So um, my advice to the to the attorney was, I really wouldn't pursue that. You know, as a medical theory for the case, you're just not going to be able to back it up with evidence from the literature. Yeah. Sure, that happens all the time. It's it's yeah. a little bit more sexy to talk about when we find the literature that supports our theories, but right. more cer- certainly that it's very common that we find the opposite, which is also really helpful. Yeah. Anything else you got? Or? Well, no, I think I think we should wrap it up. And I okay. just want to let you know something I think we should talk about next time. Yeah, like, what, what do you got? So I was asked, well, to be honest, I get asked pretty frequently to look at cases of surgical bowel injury. You know, there's there's a multitude of cases, whether it's gynecologic, uh, general surgery, uh, urologic, where there's inadvertent uh, complication of bowel injury. And I want to talk next time about the whole scope of what to consider because it's so common and there's usually so much suffering and, you know, long-term impact of bowel injury, whether it's sepsis and all these things, you know, there's, there's things to consider like intraoperative negligence, delay in diagnosis of bowel injury, you know, informed consent comes up and I'll leave it at that. I, I think it would be a good opportunity to share that because I'm sure a lot of our listeners get cases that come across involving bowel injury. Great. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Now, if you have a question or a comment for uh, Mike and I, uh, please send us an email uh, to comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please uh, give us a, a good uh, rating. Please do a review for us. And we uh, look forward to, to talking with you next time. Thank you. Have a great thank- day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. Music